Hope is a sure thing. It's a guarantee. It's a promise made by none other than Almighty God who cannot break His promise. It's a hope of a calling. We stand firm upon this hope. A number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to walk where Jesus walked. And we, we were there at Jordan. We were there in Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. We went through the Via Della Rosa, the way of sufferings, where they, they drove the Lord through the city. We were there at Golgotha. We entered the empty tomb. And it is empty. Well, um, next Sunday, I really hope you're here because we're going to talk a lot about the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have Riches this world knows nothing of. But I'd like to say also we have riches a lot of Christians don't even realize we have. And in the book of Ephesians here, this book is absolutely rich with doctrinal truths about Christ and the church. And folks, if ever you want to find out how rich you are in Christ, you need to be reading Ephesians. We have been given what we have. We didn't work for it. We certainly didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't win it in a lotto or some kind of 50-yard dash. We have an inheritance in Christ that makes us far wealthier and far more powerful than what this world has any concept of. But at the same time, many of us Christians don't even realize the wealth that's been deposited to our account. Now folks, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't believe in that kind of nonsense. I don't believe that sort of stuff that uh, Benny Hinn teaches and that Kenneth Copeland pushes and, and guys like that. I don't, I don't fall for that at all. I don't believe it. Don't, don't follow it whatsoever. It's not scriptural. God has given us tremendous wealth. He has promised to meet our needs here on earth. We don't have to be multi-multi-billionaires. We don't need that. Our Father's loaded. Everything we need, we can go to God, our Father, and He will give us. And He is wanting to give us so much more than we realize. Not all in earthly gold and silver and dollars and bullion and things like that. No, no. But there's many other ways you can be rich. I'll tell you one thing. Every one of us here enjoys, and that's health. None of us here today are homesick, are we? Are we? It's awful quiet. <laughs> Making sure you're still alive, <laughs> still with me. <laughs> no, we, we enjoy. Now, it may not be uh, you know, health like uh, Mr. Universe or something, or one of those guys, but it's good health. We got up. We got ready. We got here. Praise the Lord. You know, we're sitting upright, clothed, and in our right mind. Praise the Lord for that. You realize how many people that are not even clothed, how many people aren't even in their right mind in the world today? And here we are. 
We have bread on our table, a roof over our head, clothes on our back, shoes on our feet. Most all of us have some kind of cash flow income of some sort. We live in a very wealthy country, don't you think? If we have medical needs or dental needs, it's not like we're in the middle of nowhere. There's plenty, plenty of different clinics, hospitals, and places we can go if we have physical needs like that. Our food is pretty good too, isn't it? Our water is pretty good. The air we breathe, that's nice too. How many here came from a place where the air was awful, smelly, and hard to, hard to, you had to choke it down? Yeah, a few. How many have visited a place where the air quality was really bad? How many have ever been to Los Angeles? Boy, oh boy. They say on a clear day in Los Angeles, you can actually see the smog. Boy, we live in a great place, don't we? But these things are temporal. And they're minuscule compared to the riches waiting for us when we get home. We're not home yet. It's not payday yet. But boy, God has blessed us along the way. Here in Ephesians, I want to look at one, just one of the many riches that God has given us in Christ Jesus. It's all possible because of Jesus. It's because of Him. That's why we enjoy such blessings. Boy, if it were not for Jesus. Those of you who are here today and you're saved, you know you're saved. Maybe you've been saved for a lot of years. Where would you be today if you never got saved? If you never got born again? I don't, personally, I don't think I'd be alive. I was pushing my way toward alcohol, alcoholism. And I just thank the Lord that He saved me before I got too deep. I praise the Lord He saved me before I got into drugs. Hmm. Now maybe someone here knows what that's all about and the, the misery of that and the deep, lousy pit that that stuff can draw a man or woman into. Maybe you've seen pictures, before and after pictures, of, of people who got onto meth. And the before picture, they look good. And the after picture, they look horrible. It's like a Hollywood makeup job with pockmarks on their face and bloodshot eyes. Their facial features, teeth missing. You know, their hair, their skin color and tone, terrible. Well, that could be any one of us. If it weren't for the grace and mercy of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He died for us. He was buried and He rose again. We serve a risen Savior. Amen? We do. And the Christians of the first century were so excited, they would greet one another with not, hey, how are you? They wouldn't greet each other with, Nice day if it don't rain. That's not how they would greet each other. They would greet each other with, one would say, He is risen. And the other would answer back, He is risen indeed. That's how they would greet each other. Not like today. Huh? 
but we still serve the same Savior. And I want to look today at one treasure that God has given us, all because of Jesus. And it's here in chapter 1 and verse 18. First, let's have a word of prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, how can we say thanks for the great, greatest gift ever? God in the flesh, dying, not just for our sins, but for my sins. Father in heaven, help us to be truly grateful, not just around the Easter time, but all through the year, to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, I ask you would bless your people today. Everyone gathered here, and we do have a good number of folks, and everyone who's watching online. And Father, remind those people that they may be out of sight, but not out of mind. And we think about them, and we pray for them. Father, please, as a little church family, increase our faith and our love for You. Please increase our intimate knowledge of You, Father, and Your ways in our lives. Bless this day as we continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look, please, at chapter 1 and verse 18, uh, this is actually part of a prayer that Paul is making for the the Christians at uh, Ephesus. Now, the Christians at Ephesus were, were great Christians. Let me tell you this. If you and I were living in the town of Ephesus 2,000 years ago, this is where we'd want to go to church. This is a great church. The, the town of Ephesus. Wow. They really had it together in so many ways. The church at Ephesus. And the believers, they made great advances in their faith. Now listen. As their faith grew, so did their love grow. Their love for Jesus and their love for one another and their love for lost people. And I hope that that can be said of you, that your faith is growing. You have a growing faith. It's growing more today. It's growing even more tomorrow. And you're at a higher level of faith today than you were six months ago, a year ago. Now you may have had some little, you know, dipsy doodles and ups and downs, but overall, you're stronger today. You have more faith in what God has written. That's what faith is all about. Faith needs a resting place, and it's in the Word of God. Faith is not just some, you know, concept out there, and you have faith, oh, brother, have I got faith. I got faith coming out my little toes. I got so much faith. Really, what is your faith in? Oh, my faith is in... What is my faith in? <laughs> faith needs to be in the Word of God, what God says to be true. Faith needs to be in His promises. When He makes a promise, we need to wait there till He meets us. Faith needs to be in what God tells us as far as instruction and how to live. That's where our faith is. So as faith grows, so does love. Faith and love kind of go together. You will know if your faith is, is growing, a proper faith, if you have increased love for Jesus, for other believers, for lost people. Now, I've met some people who say, well, I love Jesus, but boy, I don't know about uh, some Christians and lost people, they're hopeless, forget them. Well, I don't think that people like that have much of a love for Jesus because Jesus loves the world. 
Jesus died on the cross for everyone. So it's very important that we do this God's way. So you can use these things as one to help, like checks and balances. You can know if your faith is strong, if you have a growing love. And if you have a growing faith and a growing love, you will have a growing knowledge of the intimacy uh, of God and the closeness. Your prayer closet will become a wonderful place for you. So many Christians today don't seem to have a prayer closet. Whenever they do pray, it's maybe at the meal table and just for a few seconds. They don't seem to have a time where they get away from the world and get alone with the Lord. And that's so important for every one of us. It's our lifeline, folks. Christ is the head. We are the body. And the prayer is like the blood flowing all through. The prayer is like what keeps us connected, so to speak. We can't be connected properly with the Lord without good prayer. We'll never really know the Lord without prayer. So prayer is very important. It's important we get alone with God and consume portions of our Bible and then get on our knees or get on our faces before God and we pray. But now in verse 18, he says, "...the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of His calling." And that's what I want to look at for the next few minutes, the hope of His calling. You'll never know what is the hope of His calling unless the eyes are enlightened. God has to open our eyes in order to see and understand what is this. We talk about this, this calling. What does that mean? What is the calling? It's a calling, we could say, we could sort of compare, but it's a calling almost from hell to heaven. It's a calling from disintegration to glorification. It's a calling from death unto life. It's a calling to be part of God's family. That's the calling, folks. Now, we're going to take our Bibles and we're going to look at a few Scriptures this morning. So, um, let's go to the left, to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. So, Romans is just very close. Romans chapter 8. I want you to look at two verses with me. Actually, I'm going to get you to read one of the verses, okay? So you'll need your Bible open. Everyone open a Bible. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. Most of us know it anyhow, but let's read out loud together. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You see, there's the word call right there. God is calling. He's calling. He's calling. And verse number 30, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. There's that calling again. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Folks, there's far, far too much here for us to deal with in this one sermon. I want to deal with this one concept. The hope of His calling. Our calling, as I say, it's like from death unto life. But folks, it's more than that. The calling is calling us to be saved. Calling us to become part of God's family. To leave false and phony pagan religions behind us. And to come to the one true God who alone can forgive sin. So many religions in this world today they, uh, they offer no hope for sin. 
They offer no solution for sin. Some of them even deny the existence of sin. But deep down in the human heart, you know when you've blown it. When you lay an egg, you don't need someone to tell you. When you commit sin, your conscience comes to the, to the forefront and says, what have you just done? Sometimes modern psychiatry and modern drugs try and drown that out. Sometimes men and women get so deep into sin, they feel so much guilt and shame, they try to kill themselves. Others try to smother it with alcohol and drugs and sometimes even prescription medications. Some of them try and look in the mirror and look themselves in the eye and say, fooey on all that stuff. You're a, you're a good person. I'm okay. You're okay. And they try and use self-psychology to try and deal with sin. But so many religions have a problem when it comes to the, the matter of sin. You know, one good question. You could ask someone from a, a different religion, we'll, we'll use that expression, how do you fellows deal with sin? And just let them give you the answers. And you'll be amazed at what some people have been taught. God teaches all have sinned. Men, women, children, old, young, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's glory is God's perfection. Is there anyone who would be crazy enough to say, me, I am perfect? I told you a story once about an evangelist, friend of mine who's now in heaven. If he was still alive, I guess he'd be about 100 years old. So he was, he was right up there. He went to heaven. And um, he said that he went to a, a church once. He went to all kinds of churches, but one church, and he was preaching, for all have sinned. And uh, he said, now, is there anyone here that would say that they're perfect? And one man in the front raised his hand. Out of the entire congregation, this one man raised his hand. And then his wife was sitting beside him, and she piped up and said, he's not so perfect. People who know us, they know we're not perfect. So let's not fool anyone, especially ourselves. God says, all have sinned. What are we going to do about that? Because there's a price to be paid on sin. You know that. Someone breaks the law. Well, isn't it kind of normal, natural to have to make restitution or go to jail or something when you break the law? Of course, a lot of us break the law all the time and we just don't get caught, you know? Or when we see a, a police car parked on the side of the road, all of a sudden we look down at our speedometer. We make sure that we're good. Ooh, whew, boy. We're breaking the law all the time, but we're breaking God's laws even more of the time. In our thoughts, in our words, broken promises, things we do, sometimes substances we put in our bodies that are not good, the way we behave, we're always breaking God's law. What do you do about all this sin? Folks, we can't pay. We are bankrupt. No one is able to atone for his or her own sin. If it were a matter of going and taking a chicken and cutting its head off and shedding the blood, and there, that pays for your sin. We'd all be raising chickens in the backyard. We'd all be doing it. But that's not the way. The blood of animals, goats, Chickens cannot atone for sin. Only God Himself could pay the price. He's the only one capable. 
And that's why He came to earth and His name was Jesus. And the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And He came and He proved it with His miracles. No one could open the eyes of the blind. No one could raise the dead. And they still can't. Only Jesus and those miracles proved it. He never committed one sin. No one had any dirt on Him. He was absolutely perfect and He offered Himself as the Messiah. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. The Jews said, we will not have this man reign over us. But yet, as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in His name. That's the secret. That's the ticket. It's not putting money in the offering plate. It's not getting baptized. It, it, it's, it's not counting beads or saying prayers. It's receiving Jesus Christ Himself into us. Not by putting a little wafer on your tongue as the Catholic priest told you. Here, receive Christ. Open wide. That's not how a person receives Jesus. They receive Jesus by realizing their sin is sending them to a Christless eternity, to hell itself. Oh, but, 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 I've never murdered anyone. You don't have to murder anyone to get to prison. Do you think prison is filled only with murderers? What do you think? Yes or no? No. Do you think there are tax evaders in prison today? What do you think? Yes? Yeah. Do you think there's bank robbers in prison today? Yes? Mm. Yeah. There's even people in prison for attempted murder. You don't have to murder someone to go to hell. The moment you committed your first sin, your first act of disobedience, that was it. Game over. You popped your balloon. It's done. It's gone. You had your chance. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God forever and ever and ever in a place the Bible calls hell. You say, what kind of good news is that? It's none. It's not good news at all. The good news is that Jesus came to save us from going to hell. That's the good news. That's what Easter is all about. In fact, Christmas is kind of about that too, you know. The Savior came. Wow. We all have a calling. We all have a calling. God is calling us to repent and to come to Him and be born again. But it doesn't stop there, folks. Now, you're in Romans chapter 8, I think we left off. Go back to chapter 1 of Romans. And look at verse 7 with me. Chapter 1 of Romans and verse 7. Look at this. It says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. Now, say the next four words out loud with me. Called to be saints. Called to be saints. Oh, oh does that mean like St. Joseph? Huh? Does that mean like St. Christopher? No. No. These are not Roman Catholic saints. These are not patron saints to whom you pray. It has nothing to do with that. The idea of saint means set apart. The idea means a holy life. A holy living person. We can only do that if we're born again. People who are not born again can give the outward look of holiness, but inside they're still corrupt. That's why Jesus, looking at some of the most 
expert people in the whole world that have ever lived. Expert at giving the appearance of righteousness. They were the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he, re- he likened them to the whitewashed graves where they would put this nice clean paint, this whitewash on the outside, but on the inside it was full of dead men's bones. Someone who's trying to be righteous on the outside, they just have a coat of paint. But on the inside, there's still the lusts, the greed, the anger, the bitterness, the shaking of the fist at God, the lack of faith, all of the sins of the mind and the sins of the mouth. It's all there. And one day, they'll stand before God and in judgment, all this will be made public up on a big screen. The evidence will be too great. They'll be put into hell forever and ever and ever. That is not a happy, a happy story. The happy story is they don't have to go to hell. That's the happy story because Jesus died for them. They need to receive Jesus. And we have been called to do that and we're also called to be saints. Holy ones separate from this world. But folks, the calling doesn't even stop there. It goes even further. Now go back to Ephesians, would you? Because this is where you'll see it. Ephesians chapter 1. Now we know what the calling is. We should all know what the calling is, okay? But now in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Well, so far, if you didn't know what the calling was, now you do. So at least you've got that much enlightenment. But there's more. That ye may know what is the hope of His calling. It's not just a calling. It's a hope of His calling. What in the world is this hope? Does this mean, well, I hope He calls me. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope He calls me. I hope, I hope I go to heaven. I hope so. No. That's not what it means. In the Bible, hope is not how we tend to think of it. Hope is a sure thing. It's a guarantee. It's a promise made by none other than Almighty God who cannot break His promise. It's a hope of a calling. We stand firm upon this hope. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 describes this hope as being a sure and steadfast anchor. We have a hymn that we sing in our hymn book. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Right? And we love that hymn. And it's anchored in Jesus. Our hope is an absolute, sure, happy ending. It means we have a safe, assured passage to heaven. That means that if there's a time in my life where I have repented of my sins and I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior... I have a guaranteed, sure, safe passage to heaven. And I'm going to prove that to you today because this is so important. There are Christians who are living their lives sort of semi-blind to the sureness, the steadfast anchor of hope in the calling. They understand the calling, but they never did understand the hope part. And we need our eyes enlightened so that we can understand what is the hope of this calling. Now, you're in Ephesians. Turn to the right to the book of Philippians. Just a couple pages. Philippians 
chapter 1, and verse number 6. Verse number 6. Now again, would you read this out loud together with me, please? All together, Ephesians, uh, sorry, Philippians 1, verse 6. Let's go. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a sure thing. The day of Jesus Christ for you, for me, is the day when we see Jesus. When we go home to heaven. God's not done with me yet. He hasn't given up on me. I'll tell you, last Wednesday, April the 6th, 47 years ago, 1975 was the day I repented of my sin and I trusted Jesus as my Savior. He came into my heart. First time in my life, I felt close to God. I knew about God. He was out there. I would pray, you know, but I never felt close to God until that day when I was born again and I was saved and part of His family. Now, over those 47 years, watch my hand carefully. My Christian life has done some of this stuff. Have you ever done some of this stuff? Some people call it the dolphin. Others call it oscillation. We get close to God, going great. We cool off. We start slipping. We're not spending time with God like we used to. The love, joy, and peace seems to disappear on us. Holy Spirit convicts us. We repent and come back Close to God. Now, the thing is, that oscillation is kind of normal, but it ought to be on an upward trend. I don't know of anyone who starts, you know, at, at zero and just goes a straight line, you know, all the way up to heaven. I've never met them yet. But I know a lot of Christians that do the dipsy doodle. But it ought to be going up every year. Your backslidings ought to be less. And your revivals ought to be more. You see, in the book of Proverbs 4.18, it says, The path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. And we ought to become more like Jesus today than we were a year ago. And if you are less like Jesus today than you were a year ago, you got a problem, my friend. you got a problem. You can fix that problem today. At the end of this message, we're going to have a, what we call an invitation. If the Lord has touched your heart about something, maybe you're doing the dolphin. You need to come and get on your knees and ask God to help you fly straight. You need to ask God to help you with the things that are pulling you down. And maybe you've got some bad stuff that's pulling you back and pulling you down. Maybe for you, it feels every time you want to take a step toward Jesus... The old devil grabs you by the scruff, you know, and says, where do you think you're going? And pulls you back. You need to ask the Lord's help. Jesus, give me revival. Give me a closer walk with Thee. Give me power over these sins of the world and the flesh. Give me wisdom. Give me filling of the Holy Spirit. Let me rise up with the wings as eagles. Father, I'm... I'm through with fluttering with the turkeys. I want to rise up with wings of eagles and I want to fly with you, Jesus. You can do that in the end of this sermon on the invitation.
If you are a Christian, you have a hope of his calling. And this hope is an absolute, guaranteed, sure thing. That's what it's all about. We are secure, secure in Jesus. Jesus himself in John 10, 28 said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Did you get that? You will never die and go to hell if you have eternal life. Eternal life is in Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. You will never. It is impossible because it is the very promise of Almighty God. You see, Romans chapter 11, verse 29 tells us that the calling of God, when He called you to salvation, the calling of God is without repentance. It means God will never repent. He will never go back. Give me that salvation back. You don't deserve that. I've been watching you. I've been listening to what's coming out of your mouth. You don't deserve my son. You don't deserve my salvation. I'm taking it back. And God would never do that because the calling of God is without repentance. He's not going to change his mind. I'll give you a little secret. I want to tell you a little secret about God. He knows everything. Is nothing he does not know. That means that today he knows what you're going to be doing tomorrow. Yesterday, he knew what you're going to be doing today. On Friday, he knew what you were going to be doing on Saturday. On Thursday, he knew about Friday. On Wednesday, he knew about Thursday. You get the idea? And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus stretched out his arms and died for your sins, he knew all about you. And he knew about your ups and he knew about your downs. And he still extended his call to you to be saved. And you took it. And with it, you got his guarantee that you shall never perish. That is the hope of his calling. That is rich. That is absolutely rich. Listen, other religions don't give that to you. If you run to the Catholics, they won't tell you, oh yeah, you do this and you are guaranteed of heaven. They'll never tell you that. They'll say, well, you know, it all depends on how you live. If you say enough Hail Marys, if you give enough money to the Catholic Church, if you burn enough candles, no, you won't go to hell, but you won't go to heaven. You'll go to what? Purgatory. Where you'll be purged for maybe a hundred years, a thousand years, and after enough purging, then you'll be ready to go to heaven. But the people on earth got to help purg you. Well, what kind of, what if they don't purg me enough? Maybe I'll never get to heaven. Uh, other Christian cults. The Jehovah's Witness, for example. Mormons, for another example. They'll tell you that as long as you are a good cult member, well, they won't say cult member, but as long as you follow their religion, then you stand a good chance. But if you ever back off, psst, that's it for you. You know, you won't make it. So many religions are like that. Follow us, you'll get there. Don't follow us, you're out. What is that in the Philippines, the name of that, uh, the Church of Christ, the one with the flying churches, flying church buildings, where they, they teach and people believe this, that you have to be in that church building at the right time 
Otherwise, you're not gonna you're not gonna go to heaven. You got to be in the church building. Well, I wonder what happened when COVID hit. Did they change their theology? How many people were not able to get into that church building? I'd rather believe God's word, wouldn't you? Amen. Our hope, our calling, it's a gift of God. And it's eternal, past, present, and future. Well, listen, we've got to close up things here, but I want to tell you a story. It happened before any of us were born. It happened in 1694. Francois Arouet was born in France in 1694. Francois became a genius writer who championed the cause of free speech as well as the abolition of slavery. He became a famous philosopher. He wrote 20,000 letters. He wrote 2,000 books and pamphlets on various subjects. He was a genius, a brilliant man. And in 1718, Francois decided he would adopt a new name for himself. And that name was Voltaire. How many have ever heard of Voltaire? Raise your hand. How many have never heard of Voltaire? Raise your hand. All right. We're about equal, divided here. You are about to hear about Voltaire. Now, there's some discussion as to what the name Voltaire means. Why did he choose that name? However, over his 83 years of life, Voltaire went on to become a very rich man as well as a very vocal critic of religion in general and Christianity specifically. Voltaire purposely wrote many lies about Christianity and ridiculed God and the Bible openly. He wrote, quote, The Christian religion is assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected the world. End of quote. In 1764, he wrote, quote, The Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what liars teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. Voltaire's hatred of the Bible was so great that in 1776, he predicted these words, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. That means a really, really old curiosity seeker. And yet, within 50 years after his death, the very house in which Voltaire lived and wrote all his blasphemous works, the very house was purchased and used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and Gospel tracts. And the very printing presses that Voltaire used to print his blasphemous books and pamphlets was used to print Bibles. Voltaire's end came in 1778 at 83 years of age, and he died a most frightening death. When Voltaire felt the stroke that he realized must terminate in death, he was overpowered with remorse. He at once sent for a priest and wanted to be reconciled within the church. His infidel friends, of which he had many, 
hasten to his bedchamber to prevent his recantation, but it was only to witness his public disgrace and their own. He cursed all of his infidel friends to their faces, and as his distress was increased by their presence, he repeatedly and loudly shouted, Begone! It is you that have brought me my present condition. Leave me, I say, begone! What a wretched glory is this which you have produced in me! Now hoping to relieve his anguish by a written recantation, he had it prepared, he signed it, it was witnessed, but it did Voltaire no good. For the next two months, he was absolutely tortured with such an agony as led him at times to gnash his teeth. Say, what does that mean? A man years ago jumped out of a plane with a parachute. The parachute failed to open. The man fell to his death. As they examined the body, they noticed his teeth were ground up into bits. That is what gnashing of teeth is. And that's what they do in hell. They gnash their teeth. He was in such agony, he would gnash his teeth in impotent rage against God and against man. At other times, in a mournful voice, he would plead, O Christ, O Lord Jesus. And then turning his face, he would cry out, I must die, abandoned of God and of men. At the very end, his condition became so frightful that his infidel friends were afraid to approach his bedside, and yet still they guarded his door so that others might not see how awful was the death of an infidel. Even his nurse, Voltaire's nurse, repeatedly said for all the wealth of Europe, I would never see another infidel die. It was a scene of horror that lies beyond all exaggeration. This was how Voltaire died, who had a natural genius, an excellent education, great wealth, and much earthly honor. After Voltaire died, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart wrote a letter to his father and said, The arch scoundrel Voltaire has finally kicked the bucket. Now you compare a death like that with the death of one of God's children. In 1899, one of the world's most famous evangelists, Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody, lay on his deathbed. Here's the account. For several hours, Mr. Moody was very restless, unable to sleep. About six o'clock, he quietened down and soon fell into a natural sleep from which he awoke in about an hour. Suddenly, he was heard speaking in a slow and measured voice. And he was saying, Earth recedes. Heaven opens before me. Now the first impulse was to try and fully waken him up from what appeared to be a dream. His son, William or Will, 
as he was called, was at his bedside. And Mr. Moody said, no, this is no dream, Will. It's beautiful. It's like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. And then it seemed as though he saw beyond the veil. Because the next thing he said was, this is my triumph. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it for years. The hope of his calling has changed death into a doorway to glory. All this because of what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. My question for you today, have you heard God's call to you to become His own? Have you heard the still small voice of God calling you? Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the door of your heart, my friend. If any man hear my voice, there's the voice of God, the still small voice calling. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. That is the promise of Almighty God. Is it yours today? Would you stand to your feet, please? We'll have a word of prayer. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.